0: This is the Room Now podcast for the 12th of July, 2019. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Today we're gonna talk about risk factors for MAS, that horrible macrophage activation syndrome. Is it safe to get pregnant if you have psoriatic arthritis? There's actually good data on this. And lastly, is CBD really safe? Is it just a few drops of delight at $70 a drop? Or is it really something you should worry about? This and more. We're gonna start off with a discussion on PSA and the risk of uh, what may happen during their pregnancy. It's actually a a merging of two large registries in Sweden that looked at a total of 541 psoriatic arthritis patients and compared them to almost 40,000 non-PSA pregnancies um, in recent time. And what they actually showed was that if you had psoriatic arthritis, you were at higher risk for preterm birth and also for cesarean section deliveries. But other things were not actually at a higher risk, things like preeclampsia, stillbirths, um, malformations, that sort of thing. So while not entirely um, dangerous, there's a few concerns, and that again being preterm birth and cesarean deliveries, this is pretty much the same story you see with rheumatoid arthritis, suggesting that patients need to be counseled, patients need to be ready uh, so that they can have the most successful outcome when it comes to pregnancy. What happens when psoriatic arthritis patients are CCP positive? It does happen. The question is how often? A meta-analysis of 14 studies and 3,200, 3,300 patients shows that the risk of CCP positivity was almost 10%, 9.8% to be specific, and that if you had psoriatic arthritis and you were CCP positive, you were more likely to have polyarthritis, a four-fold increased risk of polyarthritis. Bony erosions, a threefold increased risk of bony erosions, and dactylitis, almost a two-fold increased risk. However, CCP was not associated with enthesitis, and this makes perfect sense. We think that enthesitis is certainly mediated by IL-17 activity. I would have thought the same uh, for dactylitis. I was a little bit surprised at that result. I wasn't surprised that CCP brought with it a risk of more joint involvement and erosive potential. Uh, I think you're gonna see that in other disorders as well but it does happen in psoriatic arthritis. And again, if you have psoriatics who are polyarticular, they may well be CCB positive. My favorite subject, adult onset Still's disease. An analysis of 182 hospitalized patients with adult Still's disease looked at what factors may predict the development of macrophage activation syndrome. As you know, Still's disease is a highly inflammatory disorder. uh, And as sick as they look, as septic as they look, and as much steroids and drugs as they may receive, Stills almost never kills anyone. It's almost impossible. It could happen with pericardial tamponade, but there's very few cases of that amongst the many thousand reported. For a Stills patient to get in trouble, it's gonna be a toxicity issue with drugs we may use, including steroids, or it's the development of macrophage activation syndrome, which you know, across all the diseases, MAS is most likely to occur in autoimmune disease and infections and cancer but the most common one most common cause is systemic jia and that carries through to the adults and adult onset stills disease in this particular study they showed that the factors most likely to um, increase the risk would be number one splenomegaly 5.7 fold increased risk number two pericarditis 6.5 fold increased risk and a ferritin greater than 2000 with almost a five-fold increased risk now, splenomegaly is seen about 20% of patients with Still's disease, pericarditis about 40% if you consider pericarditis and pleuritis together. Uh, and ferritin is only seen in about half the patients. So we're looking at patients, a subset of patients with newly diagnosed inflammatory Still's disease, it just happens to be the most inflammatory subset. I would say that a Still's patient who has rising LFTs, who has rising uh, ferritin levels, who leukocytosis has turned to leukopenia, um, that's someone who is getting hotter and hotter and hotter like a, a, a hot kettle on the stove that's not being turned off and is soon going to melt down and develop MAS. Watch for that. An interesting study looked at the association between how well controlled lupus is and how much money you're going to spend in the care of lupus. They looked at 212 patients in a single center, analyzed them for uh, the relationship between uh, disease activity measures and damage, and uh, and and how much was spent. Turns out that if you were um, had damage at baseline, uh, significant damage, if you were uh, using significant amounts of steroids, you were actually increasing the cost of care. However, if you were someone who spent l- more than 50% of their time in the lupus low disease activity state, (LLDAS), they had a 28% reduction in overall cost of care. So certainly these these are our goals, right? We want patients to be in low disease activity state, and that's good for the patient, that's good for all the outcomes you're gonna look at, but there's a significant cost savings that we often don't talk about in the care of lupus. Lupus patients who are not well controlled can be very, very expensive to society uh, and or institutions uh, and, and municipalities. Uh, optimal care is the way to go. So another study looked at Medicare patients, uh, and this is a very large study, 28 states, uh, over uh, 10,000 Medicaid patients who were on um, Plaquenil and are supposedly on Plaquenil for their lupus. And an analysis of that Medicaid data showed that only 15% were fully adherent to taking Plaquenil. And what they showed was that they matched up who was non-compliant to the zip codes that they looked at. Again, this is 28 states across the U.S. and showed that those zip codes that had a higher prevalence of African Americans were the ones that had the lowest degree of compliance with hydroxychloroquine use. However, the same uh, sort of findings were not extended to zip codes that were rich in Hispanics and or whites. Um, And it turns out that those uh, uh, zip codes that uh extended to the those living below the poverty level did not have uh significant reductions in compliance as you saw in this so there could be an educational issue here Uh, and i think that obviously compliance is a gigantic educational challenge to all of us an interesting study comes from korea that also looks at lupus compares 120 lupus patients to, I think it was 240 match controls and looked at the risk of developing serious infections. And not surprisingly, the risk factors for developing a serious infection include serositis, hematologic involvement, or daily steroids above 7.5 milligrams per day. Serositis and hematologic, they're also gonna get steroids. Now, these are supposedly uh, adjusted for things like steroids and sex and other things. So I guess independently, those uh, disease activity markers, psoriasis and hematologic disease, um, may may, may identify a population that's a greater risk because they're more severe. Uh, Again, it really wasn't well worked out. This is a number study, uh, but I think interesting nonetheless. Cannabis is obviously all the rage I think is like 30 plus states that have it approved are going to be approved. It probably will be approved at some point in most states. The problem is the drug would never be approved by the FDA if it went in front of the FDA. They don't have the studies, and it's likely they ever get the studies to prove its efficacy and safety. There are a lot of safety concerns with this, but it is getting more and more popular. An analysis of a thousand patients from two adult dispensaries in Colorado showed that the majority of cannabis use was for primarily pain in 65% and 74% to promote sleep. Obviously, it's being used for everything from lumbago to itchy teeth, but um, that's the predominant use, uh, and I think that that makes some degree of sense. Where this is gonna go in the future is unknown. I think that the leading edge of this, however, is the big movement of CBD oil and also the management of pain and sleep and God knows what. The FDA had a large uh, hearing on this recently, a public hearing, to find out you know what the issues were who the stakeholders were. There was both negative reports and positive reports and pleased for you know, approving this drug, but it's not gonna be approved. It's gonna be regulated by the FDA as a food product. But a Forbes report recently, that's the Forbes magazine, uh, laid out some of the evidence showing that CBD is not entirely safe, that there is a significant, small, but significant risk of liver issues. So there is actually one drug on the market It's called Epidolex. It's a a CBD containing compound that is marketed for seizures. It's modestly effective, but it is FDA approved. But in their clinical trial development program, five to 20% of patients had some degree of liver toxicity. The FDA also warned during their hearing and put out the information about, it's not just liver toxicity, it's also issues of suicidal ideation, actual suicides, agitation, depression, aggression, and pan attacks, panic attacks in people who are taking CBD. Now, of course, that could be the people who are taking CBD who are prone to those things, regardless of the CBD, but the question is, does CBD add to that? And and Again, this it's not gonna be an approved drug, an FDA approved drug. We're not gonna see good trials about safety for this product. So while all the rage, we in rheumatology are left to give advice on something for which there is no data. And this is a problem. But nonetheless, I think you have to listen to your patients, talk to your patients, and develop a scheme which may help them, one that they can afford, and one that will help them to avoid risk. Two more reports, an interesting one that was also presented at ULAR, and that is tenizumab, which is an NGF, a Neurogrowth growth factor inhibitor. I think this is being developed by Lilly and someone else, who is it, maybe, I don't know, some other company who will write me a nasty letter at the conclusion of this uh, report, but uh, it went into a clinical trial with 698 patients, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled control trial where patients with moderate to severe OA of the hip and knee, uh, who had failed um, standardized therapy with analgesic drugs, went and received either placebo or one of two dosing regimens with the NGF inhibitor, teniz- tenizumab And while the data looked modestly effective um, comparing the three regimens. Um, there was a slight edge, a statistically significant edge, but it didn't look much different than placebo. So for instance, the main outcome, one of the three main outcomes was the WOMAC pain score, zero to 10 scale. The mean change was something like 7.4 to 3.6 for the two uh, Tunizumab regimens, and it was like 7.3 to 4.4. 4 with the placebo. So it was different, but not that much different. And the real kicker here is that it's not entirely safe. There, obviously, there are some reports of neuropathy and neuropathic kind of findings when you use these drugs, but what they saw was that the risk of rapidly progressive OA um, only occurred in tinizumab-treated patients. The 2.5 milligram group had five cases or 2.2%. The 2.5 five milligram group had an incidence of one case of 0.4%, but none in the placebo. The incidence of progression a total joint replacement in this cohort was higher on tenizumab, 3.5 and 6.9 on tenizumab percent versus 1.7 on placebo. As you know, by taking away um, the pain perception with this drug, you may promote a Charcot-like joint, rapid progression of the joint, that would lead to destroy the destruction and or joint replacement. This is why the drug was initially held by the FDA um, and then with this being worked out and understood, uh, it's now back in clinical trials. The problem with this drug is, while it's a novel new approach, does it really change the game sufficiently to uh, incur a small but significant risk for, for progressive uh, rapidly progressive joint damage may be so rapid as to lead to joint replacement. The last report comes for improved pregnancy outcomes in lupus, this is an uh, Annals of Internal Medicine article from last week, uh, a very nice study of 93,820 lupus patients who were pregnant compared to 78 million pregnancies, 78 million, imagine doing the calculations on this, um, patients without lupus who are hospitalized in the United States between 2013 and 2015 and then earlier from 1998 to 2000. So they compared these two time frames, 1998 to 2000 and then 2013 to 2015. During that time frame, the um, uh, outcomes in lupus improved significantly. And that's over 18 years. So um, maternal mortality um, significantly improved. The rates went from 442 in lupus and 113 in non lupus patients, and that's 13 per 100,000 population um, in 1998, to down to less than 50 and in 10 in, in 2013 and 15. That's a 35 fold reduction in um, maternal mortality. Fetal mortality rates also declined, but it was not significant. We're doing a much better job in managing our lupus patients, and I think that's a great report. Uh, That's it for this week. At Room Now, go to the website. You can read more about these links. We'll talk again next week. Thanks for tuning in. Take care.